Sharon Buller is the author of three books, including one called Design Thinking for Training and Development, Creating Learning Journeys That Get Results. But Sharon is not just an author. She developed BLP, or Bottom Line Performance, built it over many years from one person, just herself, to 33 employees and 4 million in sales before selling it to another company called Tier One. Now, in today's interview, as Sharon admits, her training company would not have grown, couldn't have grown, without a focus on the kind of stuff that training and development practitioners often overlook. Negotiating terms of a contract, devising pricing strategy, recruiting associates and suppliers, vendors, assistants, managing accounting and marketing, developing systems and standard operating procedures or SOPs, all that kind of stuff. So, in effect, there are two parts to today's episode. One, we'll talk about what Sharon's book is all about, design thinking and why it's relevant to you and me, and how it gets results for our clients. Next, we'll look at why a clear vision helped Sharon to grow her company, BLP, where learning and development practitioners like you and I need to focus on to build a business, and of course, which skill sets are necessary and needed to scale and grow. This is the Training Business Podcast. Hey, and welcome to the trainingbusiness.com podcast. Every week, we bring you exciting news and interviews with training business experts and training business entrepreneurs from around the world. Thanks for tuning into today's episode. Here's your host, Mark Garrett Hayes. Hey, welcome to the show. My name is Mark. It's my pleasure to host another episode of the show. This is the show for people like you and I. If you're sitting there thinking, what is this about? Well, if you're a coach, a facilitator, a trainer, a consultant in learning and development, this is what the show is all about. It's bringing you stories, inspiration, information every single Thursday without fail on your podcast platform of choice. So please subscribe because it costs absolutely nothing, but it validates what I and the team do, which is to bring you great success stories and insight, the kinds of information and inspiration which will help you wherever you are on that journey, whether you're starting, growing, or scaling your business. Sharon, hi, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Mark. I'm very excited to be here today. You're speaking to me from Florida Florida today, I should say. I am. So mm-hmm. I'm enjoying sunshine and warm weather, um, which nice. I'm sure many people are envious of right now. Yes, I'm freezing over here in Europe. <laughs> yeah, I know. So look, the reason I have you on the show is twofold, um, and there are two parts to today's episode. The first thing is to talk about your book, and the second is your wonderful story of starting, growing, and selling BLP. So lots to get through. Let's begin with with part one. You've co-written a book called Design Thinking for Training and Development. Subtitle is Creating Learning Journeys That Get Results. So let's start with that, first of all, the concept. What is design thinking for those who are new to that idea? Design thinking is also known in a lot of circles as human-centered design. So it has its roots. Um, It's a problem-solving technique. It's not actually a design technique. And it's very useful for designing problems that you don't really understand very well. Problems where you're not very clear on what the appropriate solution might be. And it starts with empathy. So 
if you can imagine a Venn diagram, which is a diagram we use in the book, it's a diagram used to show the concept of design thinking. And you think of the user or the customer or the learner in the top circle of the Venn. Then you think of the business in the lower left circle of the Venn and any constraints that are in the environment in the lower right circle of the Venn. And it's that intersection of those three that forms the sweet spot where you can come up with the optimal solution that that will work in the user or the learner, the customer's environment, will solve for the business's problems, but also meet the wants and needs of the user. And that's really the core of what we're trying to go with with this. And that's what training and development and performance solutions need to have in them. Mm. They also need to recognize that learning is not an event. Um, We don't host a class or offer an e-learning course and people go through that course and suddenly they are changed. Change is usually precipitated internally first. I have thoughts or feelings about an experience I'm having. I then act out based on those thoughts or feelings. Mm -hmm. So how I feel about something is translated into my behavior. And then it is behavior that leads to results. So all those kinds of things feed into design thinking. If we can't get to the internal motivations or needs of the learner, then we can't really get to the results that we want. And too often in training and development, if you think of that same Venn diagram or those three circles, the diagram for the business is really big. (laughs) It kind of overlaps everything. Mm. And then second to that might be the environment and the learner is often third. So we end up crafting solutions that are oriented toward the business and we too easily give in to what we perceive as the constraints of the environment and we ignore the learner entirely. So it's trying to start with an empathetic view of the learner first, getting their perspective, then co-creating together and ideating possible solutions then prototyping those solutions and testing them for the experience that they're going to deliver and then refining them and revising them based on what we find out from testing. So testing is something that's done early and often in a design thinking approach. It is not relegated to the end or to a pilot that is sort of in name only. (laughs) We say we're going to pilot it, but we really don't allow enough time between the pilot and when we're going to fully roll something out to make any meaningful change based on what we might learn in the pilot. So I guess when people, yeah, it sounds when people, you know, think of uh, instructional design, something like Addy, we think of those things as being self-contained. We're just going to go through the A, the D, the D, the I, and the E, and that's it done. And then we're going to, as you said, you know, do some pilot and that's the job done. It sounds to me like the difference between waterfall project design and agile, waterfall where we think with everything up front and that's the thing done, Whereas agile, it means that we're actually iterating, releasing functionality, testing, getting some feedback, and cycling that into the next uh, development. Is that that fair to say? It is very fair to say. And agile kind of rose up as a response to design thinking problem-solving approaches. It supports them. Mm -hmm. Um, It it enables them. So um, in learning and development, not everything is appropriate for a design thinking approach. I say that in the front of the book. If you really already are very clear on the problem, 
and the appropriate solution, then it would be silly to invest the time and the resources in a design thinking approach. But the trick is, is you may think you know what the problem is, but you really don't. I think there's a case study in the book where that's actually true. And it was for some software that was rolling out um, with a company um, called California ISO, which in the United States, we have these entities that really control our energy grid located in various spots of the country. And they control the energy grid for multiple states. And so they aren't really selling or buying energy, but they're making it available. And they were rolling out some new software and they made some assumptions that they needed to do all of this training of their operators to help them understand this software. And we gently encouraged them to include some of their target users in a design meeting and heard a very different story. They did not want extensive training. They wanted and needed two to three minute just-in-time how-to videos on specific aspects of the software mm-hmm. that correlated to specific work tasks they might be doing in the moment. And they ended up with a completely different solution as a result of that feedback mm-hmm. and a cheaper solution, honestly. So what they were going to build was going to be far more costly and require more effort than what they ended up building. So that's a great example of listening to the learner resulting in a better solution. A different case study that's also in that book is on some software that we created or an app that we created for dialysis patients who are trying to learn home dialysis. When we went into the design, the business really wanted a solution for an iPad. And their reason was a business reason. They were already providing iPads to patients in the centers. And so it would have been most efficient for them to make sure that this training resided on an iPad. But when we involved patients in the discussions about what would be the most usable, helpful experience for them, they wanted it on their phones. Because when they're sitting at home doing this dialysis, they don't have an iPad. They have their phone. And they can also hold their phone with one hand, which is all they have available to them when they're undergoing dialysis, because the other arm is being used to um, house the needle that's going into their arm that's starting the whole flow. So it's really interesting seeing that contrast between what the business wants and what the learner wants, and then trying to find that sweet spot. And also what the consumer wants, because they're the people who are going through the training under our stewardship. Yes. Um, I'll give you an example from your world, because I know you do a lot of sales training, sales mm-hmm. enablement. Yep. Years ago, um, we were supporting a product launch for an agricultural company that um, has herbicides and pesticides. And they were putting out a new product, and they had a lot of technical people in the room, uh, PhDs in agronomy and uh, knowledge of bugs and insects and all this stuff. And they were telling us everything that needed to go into this training for the sales reps. And I asked, I said, well, how do they use this in a sales call? We got this blank look because none of these people had actually ever been on a sales call. We didn't have any sales reps in the room. 
And these scientists were really just feeling like they had to tell them all the scientific knowledge. And so we got some sales rep perspective and we found out how long they had in a call, what they typically needed to convey. And it was very humbling for those scientists who were driving the whole decision-making process to find out, oh, I might only have three minutes with the customer. (laughs) I'm not going to be able to get to all that information. Um, Instead, I just need to be able to tell them this. Hmm. And it, it totally changed how we did the training. Same company, same same situation, but with a different target customer. And we found out that their sales calls could be a couple of hours, very different again from what they thought. And how they used that information happens very differently than the scientist understood it to be. Right. So it, it altered and shifted how we designed the training from that viewpoint and that context. So no, I, I like the, I have to say, I like the, the, the sub uh, or the subtext or the um, subheading, which is creating learning journeys that get results. And I mm-hmm. think that's often a problem is that many of us, if we're instructional designers or an element of instructional design exists in our role, we end up focusing on, on how it works and how it looks and, and how it's designed as opposed to, does it actually get something? And, and I think this ties in beautifully to the the title or the the name you gave to your business, which is bottom line performance, which is what yeah. results is about. I think there's a, there's yeah. a nice tie in there. So yeah. you left your job in a consulting company. You decided to start off on your own, like many of us do. And you grew that from just yourself. Yeah. Um, your husband, Kirk, joined. And then you grew to 34 employees and 4 million in revenue before selling it to tier one, another company. Um, and I, that's a really exciting journey because many of us uh, work as employees. We decide to work for ourselves. We end up really running the whole thing, but not thinking of it as a business separate from us. But you've managed to do what many people aspire to do, which is to create something apart from yourself, which is to grow a business and do so in a way that takes on um, a whole bunch of skill sets, many of which you didn't actually have. And I think that's exciting. How did you um, realize you wanted to, you had a vision for your uh, business. You had four guiding principles. You told me when we first spoke about yeah. who you wanted to be as a company and how you grew that then over 20 years to be um, a training company with many people and a considerable revenue figure. So, Where do we start with that story? Yeah, that story started no differently, I don't believe, than it does for many people in our industry who decide they want to go out and start working for themselves. Mm -hmm. For whatever reason, their job is not working well with the life they want to have. And for me, that life centered on at the time, I had a two-year-old and a five-year-old. And I had a vision for how I wanted my family life to go. And that vision wasn't compatible with the requirements and the demands of the job I had at that time, which was working as a VP of instructional design. And I was doing a lot of work um, for Eastern European audiences who were on a very different time zone than I was. (laughs) So that made it really, that all by itself made it really hard. And the hours were not compatible with what I felt comfortable with at the time. So I decided to start off on my own primarily as a lifestyle business to improve my lifestyle. It went very well. 
You know, I, I never lost money from the very beginning. The first year, I think I made $12,000, which I could do because I had a spouse who had a job that had the benefits and the bigger income that sustained us. So what I made was honestly kind of gravy for us at that point, but it kept growing. And so three years in and suddenly I'm up to about a hundred thousand dollars and it's going really well. And my husband's company sells all of its interest in the United States and we're looking at each other and he's kind of seeing that while I'm doing really well with the selling and the executing of the projects, I don't have business background, which he did. Uh And he's like, you know what? And he got a very nice uh, parachute offer from his business that gave him a two-year consulting gig, continuing to do work to protect their interests in the United States. So we kind of joined forces. And he was the infrastructure. He helped set IT for me, you know, get the IT infrastructure in place. We started hiring employees, which required HR policies and procedures. Um, he kind of maintained all that infrastructure. And we did that, by the way, in a whole 100% virtual environment. We didn't have office space until almost a decade in. But we kept growing. But to your point about the guiding principles, when we decided to join forces, I, who I, am more the vision maker, said, I feel like we have to have a target, an impetus, a reason why. And it was clear to both of us. It was it came easily. We're sitting at our kitchen table and it was family's the reason we do what we do. We are going into this business together because we want a certain way of living and we want to practice a certain kind of business. So one of our other guiding principles was to treat everyone, client or employee, with dignity and respect. And that sounds like a very surface thing. I can't tell you how many times that principle came up over the years as we discussed how to handle something and what equated with dignity and respect. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, you know, meet the company's, the client's needs, but always exceed their expectations. So that kind of dictated a certain approach to the projects we did. Mm-hmm. Those things really shaped and enabled us to grow. They gave us a story to tell people when we interviewed people and they wanted to know, well, what makes this a good place to be? And that kind of evolved for us over time that what we really wanted to create was a place that people wanted to be, whether that was customers who really liked the way we did business. And just as importantly, whether it was our team members that we hired as employees, that this was a business that they wanted to be a part of and that they felt proud to be part of. So those sort of shaped our growth. And then I acquired the business expertise through experiences, through mistakes, and through the mentoring of my spouse, who had the accounting background and the financial background to help me learn all the things I did not know, which ultimately made me a better consultant because I was able to talk to customers in terms of business results and operational results Mm. and not just the softer language that sometimes is training and development. I think that's such a a great point there. Your husband, Kirk, took over operations. You focused on marketing and sales. But you said to me when we first spoke that if someone um, hadn't come in to look after the operations side of your training business, that BLP would never have grown, regardless of who that person was. Um, I think that's true. I think that that's the big um, blind spot that a lot of people who have... (laughs) 
kind of a romantic view of starting mm. their business. They don't realize what they don't know. Mm. And they also, they get into it because they're passionate about training and development. And what I really had to grow the passion for was growing a business and caring a lot more about the numbers and the culture, nurturing a culture that people wanted to be part of, things that I had no education in formally. My master's degree was in instructional systems technology. I had to go out and learn and acquire all of the, the MBA kinds of skills that enabled yeah. that growth of the business. And you mentioned that one of your employees went back to do an MBA. Mm-hmm. What difference then did that skill set, that of your husband, Kirk, and this person who now had a, a business uh, approach on their shoulders, what, what difference do those two skill sets make to bottom line performance? I think they made less difference to us because she acquired, she got her degree probably mm-hmm. a year or so before we sold the business. But I think it positioned her really well where she is now at Tier 1. Tier 1 is a lot bigger than us. They are over 300 people, and um, they're in the $50, $60 million a year range of revenue. Lots higher than us. Probably 70 by now, actually. It's been a couple of years. Um, But she brings more of a bona fide management consulting background into the work she does. And that was really lacking in most of our team members. They were very, very technically skilled in, for example, software development or multimedia design and development, instructional design and development. They didn't have the hardcore understanding of cash, revenue versus sales and profit versus just cash flow. And understanding the criticality of cash flow, especially to a small business, basic business concepts were not there. And Kendall, when she went and got her MBA, she got that. And she really understood the why behind some of the things that we hammered on. Um, Hammering on project managers to be prompt in, in triggering invoices, for example. Because the sooner you trigger an invoice, the sooner you get paid. Some people didn't even really know or understand the concept of, say, net 30 or net 45. They didn't know what that meant. Mm. And the lack of a business background can be a real hindrance, I think, to some people in training and development. The number of people who don't really understand the distinction between sales, annual sales, and annual revenue. Yes, that's true. Not understanding that those are not the same thing. And you're wondering Uh, why you haven't got paid yet because you've uh, agreed to net 65 or net 45 as opposed to net 30. Yeah, or or you wonder why uh, there's concern when you come back and say, well, the project's going to be delayed by four weeks and your invoice schedule is on a deliverable basis. So that project being delayed by four weeks means an invoice can't be triggered for four weeks past the time that you had projected it would go. Um, those kinds of things are really the lifeblood of a small business. Hmm. And if you said also, I think you, I recall you saying that if you polled, because you wrote an article on this, which I read, and you said, Mm -hmm. if I, if I polled, this is you speaking, if I polled most L and D professionals, people who work for themselves listening to this, um, you feel confident that many would struggle to do some or all of the following. Explain the difference between revenue and sales, which you've just alluded to. Mm-hmm. Um, how do I negotiate the terms of a contract? 
how do I devise pricing? How do I recruit uh, maybe associates, assistants, vendors, manage accounting, marketing systems, SOPs, explain the components of his business strategy, and of course, devise systems. All of that stuff, I'm sure to many people listening is a bit frightening. We have, to use your word, and you're quite rightfully using that word romantic notion, I'll just go and set up myself as a trainer or a consultant. Mm -hmm. And this operational stuff, which is a huge chunk of what we need to run a business, isn't there. What do we do if we haven't got someone like a Kirk or a Kendall? Where, where do we get this from? I got a lot from books. And that's mm. one thing I wish I had started far earlier. I, yeah. I love reading about stuff within my industry. It took several years before I had to come to the realization that I'm no longer a, just a training expert or a learning expert. I have to become a business expert. I need to go and learn what it means to lead a business. And so then I started reading and reading and reading. We talked about the E-Myth. That's a really good basic Yeah, Garber's book. book. Mm -hmm. um, mm. Jim Collins' book, Good to Great. Yeah. Um, gives you some concepts in there, you know, that whole concept of the hedgehog principle and <laughs> realizing, oh my gosh, I'm heading this business. I have to have a vision. I have to be able to set a direction on, of where we're going to go. And I have to understand, well, what would be the operational evidence that we're getting there? Um, I have to understand how to think about my pricing. I have to be able to think far more about my competitors and do, be able to do a competitive analysis and understand what is going to differentiate me. What is my value proposition going to be? Oh my goodness, learning all that language. I learned a lot of it through books and reading. Um, very late in my career, too late to benefit me fully, but it was something I would recommend to other people is an organization called Vistage. And I know yep. it's available in the United States. I believe it's international as it well. It is, yeah. So There's a Vista chapter near me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I highly recommend it. And I shied away from it early on because I thought, ooh, that's expensive. That would be the other lesson I would say is you better be ready to invest in yourself. If hmm. you're constantly thinking that you need to pour your money back into your business, like say for marketing, et cetera, don't exclude yourself. Make sure that you are funding your own professional development. And I mean, not the training conferences, those, yes, but then and some business conferences and, and business training investment in yourself. Yeah, even my masterminds, um, if there's something like that. Um, so Vistage for people listening is really an executive uh, yes. organization, coaching organization. So there's one, I think of two near me. I think mm -hmm. they might be chaired by the same person, but there's a cohort, let's say, of I don't know, 12 people. Yep. And they're typically all senior uh, entrepreneurs, business owners, um, CEO, COO, C-suite. And, yes. they, and they put they, problems on the table, right? Yes. And they tailor the group you're with to the size of business you're in. Mm -hmm. So um, my particular group was all CEOs. I think there might have been a, two executive VPs, um, people who were being groomed for a COO or CEO position. The smallest business was probably doing a half a million in revenue. The largest was doing 20 million. So you got a good mix of people, some people who are further along in their journey of growing their business than you, but maybe others who are not quite as far. And then you help each other. It is, it is truly coaching. But there was also a training component. We um, had speakers every quarter and you had an all-day workshop once a quarter. 
with that speaker on one might be marketing strategy, another might be business strategy. Um, and then in between times, you had these half day, once a monthers, where you would go and you would bring your thorniest issues to the table and you would look for advice and coaching from your colleagues and from the, the facilitator who chaired it. It was really, really good. And I think it's a great model for leadership development overall. You also recommended that uh, course, Ed Hess at uh, Darden. Smart growth course, yes. yeah. I, I signed up over the weekend, Sharon. <laughs> I signed he up to is, it. <laughs> it's great. He is outstanding. You have to be able to um, yeah. appreciate his southern accent because he does have one as mm-hmm, well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he's so good, and it's very pragmatic advice and guidance and instruction for small businesses. Well, I'm I'm now a student, and that's Coursera for people listening. That's Coursera, the online. Uh, third level or university um, course platform. And uh, he's very entertaining. Uh, <laughs> bit of, yes. A bit of an uh, uh, entertainer, actually. Um, so loads there. So I, th- I think the takeaways are that to kind of segue the two together, your book is called Design Thinking for Training and Development, Creating Learning Journeys that Get Results. So often, many of us focus on producing content as opposed to thinking about the results that that content leads. And that led nicely into your own story, which is amazing how you began bottom line performance. In other words, results focused programs and consulting, um, which you grew then to 34 employees and 4 million in revenue before selling it. And I also had someone on the show a number of uh, months ago called Peter Carlin, who sold his company um, to another larger company and he, we mm-hmm. talked about about how some in some ways the valleys between the two companies were not the same, but there was a bit of, of friction there. But um, it worked out. But what's interesting is I think the takeaways for people listening is that um, if you want to grow, if you want to scale, it isn't enough just to be an instructional designer or a consultant or a facilitator or a trainer. Uh, there's a huge amount to learning about the. The operation and creating something which runs when you're not there, right? It, it's got a system, it's got a strategy, it's got standard operating procedures, it's got um, accounting skills in there. There are people who perhaps may need to be brought in that do things you can't do. Um, just if we if we come to the end of this, um, if if people were to take some very simple next steps apart from Vistage, where would you get them to focus if they're right now they're working for themselves? They can't raise their head above the parapet because they're so busy spinning their wheels, training and training and booking and training. What's the easiest first step to start thinking like a business owner and not just someone who is a consultant or a trainer? Well, I I think you've already named one of them. And I think Ed Ed Hess's course is a nice one. I, I, I have taken that course twice for myself. The first time I just listened to his videos while I exercised. <laughs> so I was multitasking, right? And then um, once I went through it the first time, I actually had um, my whole senior leadership team. We went through it together. So that was really good. But a um, book that I would also recommend is a book on EOS, Entrepreneurial Operating System. Because it kind of lays out for a very small business owner, here's what you have to have in terms of structure. Whether you are fulfilling all the roles right now or not, doesn't matter. This is the basic structure of any business. 
And if you don't have a plan for how you're going to execute in each one of those boxes, you won't survive. And it is designed to help you get to that place, Mark, that you talked about, where you aren't having to do everything. It kind of helps you chart a course. And um, we used it. We operated under the entrepreneurial operating system for the last two years of the company's existence. And we were truthfully trying to get ourselves ready Mm -hmm. to be sold. That would be another tiny little add-on, I would say, is when you're focused on starting, you don't put any thought into, well, how am I going to end it? But there's always an end. And we didn't think about that end until far too late in our tenure. We, we got to it, but, but it caused us a lot of stress. There, were, there came a point about five years before the business was done when we were tired and we were ready to be done but we didn't have a plan in place for how that was going to happen. So it took a lot of work and energy in the final five years of the company's life to figure out how do we end this well? How do we end this so all of our people have a place to go? And it's funny you should say that because I interviewed someone called John Warrillow back in March of last year, and he wrote a book called Built to Sell. Mm -hmm. And he talks about how people can devise an exit strategy. But many of us, of course, don't because we're so in love with being trainers and coaches mm-hmm. and consultants. We don't think of what the end goal looks like. How do we create something that isn't, that's something that runs without us being present? Yeah. And you also want to create an end that is an ethical end. I told you that we wanted to create a business that was a place people wanted to be. When we first started being approached by people who wanted to buy the business, all they wanted to ask us was, what is our bit death? Um, how much, you know, hmm. how much profit are you making? <laughs> uh, and our bit that never looked good because we weren't focused on trying to maximize our profit. We're one of the probably few companies that said profit is, is essential and necessary to having a business, but it shouldn't be the primary driver of your business. Your primary driver of your business really should be creating an environment and a culture that works for all the people who are part of it. You have to have sufficient profit to enable growth, to enable development. But if you're focused only on profit, then that's ultimately going to be a very unsatisfying, unhappy place. Absolutely. So um, finding a, a buyer that would create a reasonable um, match for us values-wise we're fortunate and, you know, we weren't identical. Um, Tier one, because it is bigger and its numbers are a lot bigger. It's a more driven culture than we were, but I still think that they're a very human centered culture and very much care about the people who are part of it. Mm -hmm. And that persists even after you're no longer a part of them, which is something I really admire. Um, it's almost like you're always a part of the tier one family, even if you go on to something else. So, um, yeah, you need to be thinking long before you're ready to be done about well, what might my exit strategy look like and how do I do it and honor my exit in a way that feels right to me. Sharon, where can people find out more about you? And of course your book. Um, well, the ATD website, um, or Amazon is where you can get the book. And if you want to find out more about me, um, I have an entity that I am starting up called Small Things Great. Um, You can go out to smallthingsgreat.com and you can find out a little bit about what I'm up to and what I'm trying to get off the ground here. 
as I move to my next act, if you will. And um, I think that will do it. I'm hoping that people will buy the book because I've been very pleased at the feedback we've gotten so far about how helpful people find it in kind of altering how they are putting together the programs that they're doing to try and actually bring about change. Okay, brilliant. So I'll put that in the show notes, smallthingsgreat.com and a link to your book on the ATD website and or Amazon. Sharon, thank you so much for being my guest today on the show. Mark, thank you. I really appreciate having the time to talk. Huge thanks to Sharon for being my guest today on the show, for speaking to me live from Florida. And my thanks to you for listening in, because tuning in helps to increase the episode or podcast rankings and helps to spread the word about the show. If you know people who could benefit, please please tell them that the show exists. Uh, Podcasting is, of course, a competitive game, and often it's hard to find podcasts. So by one, subscribing, two, giving me feedback as to how I can improve the show, and I'll give you my email address in a second, and three, simply telling other people that the show exists really helps to validate what I do and helps to provide value to people like you and me out there in the world of training and development. My email address is simply mark at trainingbusiness.com. If you've got critique, feedback, suggestions, advice, or even if you have some need of help for something right now, which is a challenge in your business, please let me know. If I can help, I will. And if I can't, I will find a resource or person and help to connect you. So I can't do better than that. And I'd love to hear from you, whatever that challenge or suggestion or piece of feedback is. You will find all episodes of the show on your podcast platform of choice, Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and many others every Thursday without fail. So until next Thursday, look after yourself. Bye for now. once more for listening to this episode of the trainingbusiness.com podcast. See you next time.